This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it's your life. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they can help you choose personalized policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Today on State of the World, the economic impact of the Gaza War in Israel and in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories up close where they're happening. I'm Greg Dixon. War has consequences, the most important being the death and injury it causes. But there are other impacts as well that can have lasting effects. NPR's Frank Langford has been looking at the economic impact of the war between Israel and Hamas, talking to people in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and across the border in the West Bank. And he's with me now. Hey, Frank. Hey, man. So we're going to hear about the economic situation in Israel first and then in the West Bank. But more broadly, Frank, why did you want to focus on economics? Yeah, you know, I used to be a business reporter before I worked overseas. And I just think economics is a really interesting lens to look at at armed conflict Mm -hmm. and the impact that it has. Because it can have a lot of impact on the politics as well as strategy uh, also. So... I'll give you an example. Around the new year, uh, the Israeli army said they were pulling thousands of troops out of Gaza and sending them home to their families, but also, very importantly, Greg, to their jobs and civilian life. This is a military spokesman. His name is Daniel Hagari. And he said, you know, the reasons for this, they're not just tactical. This will significantly ease the burden on the economy and allow them to gather strength for the upcoming activities in the next year, as the fighting will continue and they will still be required. Right, because calling up a bunch of military reservists must have a huge impact on the Israeli economy. Yeah, I mean, basically, that call-up created a labor crisis in a variety of areas, and you know, Israel doesn't have a very big standing army, so they have to rely on the reservists. And I was really fascinated by, there are a lot of reservists in one of the most important sectors in all of the Israeli economy, and that's the tech sector. And so that's what I wanted to look at. And this is what I found. Let's take a listen. Ross is an upbeat 29-year-old who works here as a software engineer in an office of glass walls that looks out towards the Mediterranean. He's also a member of the Israeli Army's Special Forces Reserves, which gives new meaning to the concept of multitasking. Early on in the Gaza war, Roz was on a call with an overseas customer discussing a software project. Meanwhile, I was at my base preparing for a mission. I had to jungle between those two, and I remember it being super, super hard. In part because Israeli aircraft were firing guns overhead. One of the customers asked, what is this noise? And I had to explain that this is shooting sounds. Roz's unit forbids him from giving his full name for security reasons. He spent the last three months splitting his time between military missions, training, and developing software. Being a soldier is harder than being a software engineer. I also think that preserving the high-tech sector in Israel is a very important mission. Israel's home to one of the world's top tech sectors. Think products such as Waze, the Driving Directions app. But tens of thousands of Israeli tech workers such as Roz are also reservists, which means tech has faced a major labor shortage since the war began. Dan Ben-David teaches economics at Tel Aviv University. High tech is Israel's most productive sector. It employs only 10% of the workforce, but it accounts for half of Israel's exports. And many of these people serve in the reserves, and their absence from the economy is disproportionate. At the beginning of the war, the Israeli army said it was mobilizing 360,000 reservists, more than for any previous war this century. 
The Bank of Israel estimates the war will cost about $58 billion and that the economy shrank by 2% in the final three months of the year. So while it's common to talk about the international pressure that's increasing on Israel to reach a ceasefire, there is also going to be increasing internal pressure by people who need to work. Rami Ben-Ephraim has felt the labor pinch. He's a retired Air Force general and tech firm owner. More than half of the workers at Planet Nine, one of his companies, are reservists, including the firm's chief operating officer, who flies an F-16, leading a group on bombing missions and close air support. Ben-Ephraim says when the war started, his message to his COO was simple. Just go to the Air Force. You're under the Air Force right now. I'll call you once a week. I'll tell you what's happening here. You don't have any tasks. Another employee serves in a cyber unit. He splits his seven-day work week between the company and the military, including night shifts. I'm just trying to make sure that they're not exhausted. I'm telling them again the military is more important than us right now. If you have some extra time, please come and help us here. The company's had to push back some projects, but Ben Ephraim says he's made adjustments and his business is growing well. Things are much harder for some newer firms. The war has spooked some foreign investors and some early-stage startups are at risk of shutting down. The government says it's offering a total of $100 million in funding to help keep them afloat. Jorbin runs the Israeli Innovation Authority, a government agency. If the company is successful, they will pay us back the loan as a royalty from their revenues. And if they fail, the money is gone. This is the risk that we are taking. The war is just the latest drag on tech investment. Last January, the government launched plans to reform the country's judiciary. Many Israelis saw it as an attempt to undermine democracy and took to the streets. Foreign investors worried about the country's rule of law. Gigi Levy-Weiss is a leading tech venture capitalist. Founders that started companies were told by their investors that they should form the companies outside of Israel. Because if Israel has no independent court system, then you want the companies to be incorporated elsewhere. Instead of launching 13 or 1,400 new companies annually, as it typically does, Israel's tech sector only formed about 400 last year, Levy Weiss says. Which is the same number we've had in 2003. So that's like going 20 years backwards. In the wake of the Hamas attack on October 7th and the subsequent war in Gaza, the Israeli government says it's shelved its judicial reform plans. For now, tech leaders are bullish on the sector's resilience, but Levy Weiss still has concerns. I worry that unless we create full certainty, many investors that loved investing in Israel are going to say, I need to see for a second what's happening. I need to see that the war is really over. I need to see that there's a solution for Gaza. I need to see that there isn't a reform anymore. That's reporting from NPR's Frank Langfitt. And Frank, we heard there that business needs certainty. And of course, this war is uncertain. It's 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 completely uncertain. We this could go on the, the Israelis say for many months. You started that story with a, a reservist named Raz. Um is he still sort of splitting his time between serving and, and doing his job? No, and I think that that's actually very telling about what's now beginning to happen. You know, we started talking at the beginning about reservists being pulled out of Gaza. Um, I actually was at a cafe in Tel Aviv and I ran into Roz after I'd interviewed him. This was like a couple of weeks later. And he told me that he's moving to Singapore for a new job huh. for the same Israeli company. But he pointed out that this was partly a sign that they don't need as many reservists right now. Um, but he'll be working full time because uh, he won't be in the army. And of course, that helps the Israeli economy. 
So that's the situation for the economy in Israel. You also did some reporting on the Palestinian economy. There's two economies there, Gaza yeah. and the West Bank. And Gaza has far less economic output. That was even before the war because of the blockade imposed upon it after Hamas took over uh, over a decade ago. And since the war, Gaza's economic output has gone to almost nothing. So you focused on the West Bank. And first, just explain to us, where is the West Bank and what is it? Yeah, these two Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza, they are not connected. The West Bank is far larger. It's about the size of Delaware, home to about 3 million Palestinians. And Israel occupied the West Bank after the 1967 war, where it's deployed its military and police. And of course, Israel controls all the borders, which is very, very important in terms of commerce. What did you find about the war's impact on the economy there? Is it similar to what you found in Israel? No, it is much, much worse. You know, the West Bank is poor. And economically, it depends a lot on Israel. And after the Hamas attack on October 7th, uh, Israel barred somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 Palestinian workers from being able to cross the border for their jobs to work in Israel. I had this really interesting experience. I was walking through the West Bank city of Ramallah just trying to get a sense of the economic impact. And I met this cross-border worker. His name is Mutaz Katanani. He was sitting under a tree in the heart of the city. And he told me he used to commute from Gaza each day into Israel, where he actually built bomb shelters. These are the same bomb shelters, of course, that the Israelis use to seek refuge when they're Hamas rocket attacks. I used to make 450 shekels, he tells me, about $130 a day. That's good money by West Bank standards. But when Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th, Katanani fled here to the West Bank. And he hasn't been able to find decent paying work since. Maybe I get a job once a week to wash stairs, to wash windows. That's how I survive. I work from morning all the way to evening, and I make 150 shekels. Or about 40 bucks. After the Hamas attack, Israel banned West Bank workers over security concerns. It's a huge blow. Wages for cross-border workers account for $5.5 billion a year, or one-third of the combined economy of the West Bank and Gaza. That's according to the World Bank. As you walk through the streets of Ramallah these days, you can almost stop anywhere and see the effects of the war on the economy. Just like everybody, everybody here has some kind of story. I slip into one of Ramallah's many gold jewelry shops. Owner Baha Tamimi says four out of five people who come to his store these days don't want to buy gold. They want to sell it. A woman took off her wedding ring to help her husband pay for the bills and buy vegetables. This happened right in front of me. Nearby, Jude Saeed is cutting a piece of wood in his carpentry shop. It's very difficult. Maybe I get a job or two, but no one's paying or they pay very little. They give me a check, and then the check bounces, and then I have to chase them. Since the war, he says, customers owe him $32,000. Again, a lot of money in the West Bank. Per capita gross domestic product here is just $4,500, compared to Israel, where it's nearly $55,000. How long can your business last under these conditions? I'm expecting that within one week I will close. In the 1987 Intifada, it was not this bad. In the 2000 war, it was not like this. In 2004, it was not like this. In all previous wars, it's never been like this. Intifada means rebellion or uprising. 
Violence is already way up in the West Bank this year. The UN says Israel's military has accounted for more than 300 killings. Samir Anati of co-owns the carpentry shop. He says if the economy continues to slide, more violence is inevitable. For sure. I have children to feed. What can I do? I work now and get them food. I may not be able to tomorrow, so it is not me who will go for an intifada. My children will. It's not only private businesses that are struggling. The public sector is in trouble, too. Israel and the Palestinian Authority are in a dispute over tax money Israel collects for the West Bank and Gaza. And Manuel Farhan, the authority's deputy minister for the national economy, says the government hasn't been able to pay full salaries to its 143,000 workers. They received half pay last month and no pay in October. This time, it's the worst. The worst hit for our economy since the establishment of the Palestinian Authority. Which was in 1994. Mr. Halele, nice to meet you, Frank from NPR. Samir Halele is a leading economist and businessman. He worries about the loyalty of the Palestinian security forces if they aren't paid. You are telling people who have their Klachenkovs with them, and you are basically telling them, I will not spend money on you. So what's the, what's the proposal? It can be a proposal for Hamas to pay money and to buy them out and so on. I mean, you are opening up your security forces in the West Bank for options. Khalil Shikaki is a pollster who runs the Palestinian Center for Policy and Research. He, he's not as concerned about the security forces, but worries the West Bank's bad economy is just another ingredient in an already combustible brew. Since the start of the war, Hamas's popularity have shot up. The settler violence that is unending, uh, the continued belief of the Palestinians that they do not have a diplomatic alternative to violence, all of this essentially means the West Bank is currently boiling and just waiting for the spark that could uh, eventually lead to a major explosion. And so, Greg, one of the reasons that I chose this quote is it gets to one of the reasons that I did these stories in the first place, which is economics can have such a big impact on war. Mm -hmm. And what Khalil Shikaki is saying is we already have a lot of tension in the West Bank. And if things get a lot worse and people don't have jobs and they don't have money, it could spark even greater violence there than we're, we're seeing right now. Frank, thank you for your reporting. Great to do it. Always fun to talk. That's NPR's Frank Langford. And that's the state of the world from NPR. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.